the private equity industry needs to be pushed by the providers of capital for private equity to be more inclusive. And so if you look at the NFL to try to increase hiring for head coaches, they came up with the uh, Rooney rule. Andy Rooney said that you can't hire someone unless you interview a person of color. And I would tell you at certain partnerships, they need that kind of push. Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. The disparity in access to capital for black and brown founders is well documented, as is the low number of black and brown leaders in private equity and venture investing. But promising trends have begun and disruptive solutions are being put into play to drive change. This episode of Sustainability Leaders is from a recent BMO Empower Summit, where leaders of color in the investment space share their thoughts on implementing innovative strategies to bridge the resource and capital gap for black and Latinx entrepreneurs. Good morning. My name is Lavoie Brown, and I'm the head of the Economic Equity Advisory Group at BMO Harris Bank. I work alongside Vice Chair Eric Smith with the BMO Empower Initiative. I'm joined today by four incredible subject matter experts and industry executives to discuss the disparity in access to capital for black and brown founders. I would like to start the session by allowing each panel member to introduce themselves and outlining the measurable action items taken by their firm to address the lack of capital or diverse representation in this space. Let's start with Andy Zopp. Hi, LaVoy. Good morning, everybody. Happy to be with you. My name is Andy Zopp, and I'm currently the managing partner of the Cast Us Fund, which is a Cleveland Avenue fund, uh, Cleveland Avenue's event investment firm founded by Don and Liz Thompson. Um, my uh, background is I'm a lawyer, practiced law for a long time, but for the last 10 years or so, I've been really engaged in economic development, primarily here in Chicago in a wide variety of roles, including Deputy Mayor for Economic Neighborhood Development and Community Engagement and uh, CEO of the city's economic development organization, World Business Chicago. Currently, I'm, as I said, I'm managing partner for Cast Us. Cast Us is a $70 million fund launched by Cleveland Avenue in March. Uh, we invest in companies led by Black, Latinx, and women-owned entrepreneurs. Uh, we are in early growth stage funds, so we hope our company's been operating for a year or two, have typically around $250,000 to $500,000 of annual revenue. We are primarily focused in Chicago, although we are not limited to Chicago, and we are sector agnostic. So uh, it's been fun, and we're there because there are not enough VCs of color, and there's not enough capital for the businesses that we're focusing on, and we're hoping to address that issue. Really happy to be with you this morning. Thank you for that, Andy. Let's move to Jennifer. Hi, good morning, everybody. I'm Jennifer Staines, and I run uh, our family office, Financial Investments Corporation, which we started in 1994, and also help oversee the Staines Family Foundation, uh, which we started back in 1987. Uh, so I'm participating in this space really both from a market rate and a philanthropic perspective, and believe the key changes to both are required to help reduce the wealth gap and promote more equitable practices, you know, black and brown communities. 
Uh, on our foundation side, we've been focused on the North Lawndale community for over 25 years and have recently started what we're calling the Tulsa 1920 project, where we're trying to attract dozens of businesses to come into the North Lawndale community. And then on the family office side of the house, uh, we helped launch this year Fifth Century Partners, which is a fund not only like what Charles will be talking about, but in the lower middle market stage, where it's a completely black owned private equity firm focused on supporting black owned businesses and majority owned businesses that we convert over. And they're just going to be finishing their fundraising on that uh, at the end of the year. Thank you, Jennifer. Let's move to Adela. Good morning and thank you very much for having us today. It's a very important topic. I'm full-time corporate director and I sit on the board of BMO Financial Corp. So I'm very proud of BMO for highlighting this very important issue. But I'm also the chair of Angeles Investors, which is focused on advancing capital to startups, mostly led or what I call that have some Latino DNA all over the country. We're aiming to be 100 angels by the end of this year. We've made some really fabulous investments, one of them a Latina, and uh, the investment has almost 10 times increased in value in a year in the uh, communications sector. But you ask, why is this important? It's important because people of color have very little, I mean, I think it's less than 5% of all the capital that is deployed. And yet we are the ones that need it the most. We are the communities that don't have friends and family to help us get started. What's the impact? Our startups don't become of scale, don't become national because of the lack of capital early on. We're trying to remedy this with Angeles investors, but there's so much to do. So thanks for highlighting the topic. Thank you, Adela. And let's move to Charles. Good morning, everyone. I'm Charles Corpening, Senior Managing Director with Aerial Alternatives and Project Black. Aerial Alternatives is a private asset management firm affiliated with Aerial Investments. It is an enterprise newly conceived for the times, built on a 38-year foundation. The firm's initial initiative, which is Project Black, will have a mission to scale minority business enterprises that will serve as leading suppliers to Fortune 500 companies, supporting their supply chain diversity. Project Black Management Company is formed to invest in existing standalone businesses and corporate divisions in the middle market that are both minority and not minority owned, as well as existing Black and Latinx businesses with revenues on the low end to 100 million to over a billion plus in revenue. And this we will pursue six to 10 uh, platform companies. And we're very, I'm very excited to join you today to talk about the, uh, the need to dramatically increase minority business enterprises of scale in America today. Thank you. All right, thank you for that, Charles. The theme of our summit is ex accelerating access to capital, building a more inclusive economy. As we begin our discussion this morning, the sad reality is that the contrast between minority and majority startup founders is stark. Access to capital is like water to a plant or a tree. In the absence of water, there is no growth. Andy, can you set the stage by describing the racial equity gap that exists between Black, Latinx, and women business owners? And ultimately, what does access to capital mean for Black or Brown communities? 
Sure, absolutely, Charles. And you know, Adela uh, began to touch on it, and we could you know start listing statistics you know, all down the line around the amount or disparities between capital that's available uh, for Black and Latinx founders and uh, women founders, whether it's the fact that 80% of the equity needs of Black and Latinx women, uh, business founders go unmet um, compared to a much higher percentage for majority-owned companies, whether it's the fact that uh, if you look at all of the venture money that was invested uh, in 2020 or 2019, it was a small percentage, somewhere in the order of under 5%, as Adela said, went to Black and Latinx founders. To the fact that, uh, as I touched on, there are not um, a significant number of Black uh, and Latinx and women investors. Um, that's changing, uh, but that challenge is a real, it has a real impact. Um, and then in terms of the needs, look, everybody on this call knows, if you're a business person, you know uh, capital is a, is a critical piece uh, and availability capital when you're trying to grow your business. This is particularly true, you know, when we look at some of the companies that we're talking to or investing in. You have a great idea. Um, many of the companies, as Adela said, don't even have that friends and family fund. But for those who are able to even get started, you have a great idea, you make some money, you're starting to grow your company, and then you get, let's just say you're in Mariano's and you're in three stores, and they go, what, you know what, we love your stuff. We want you to go into 100 stores or 400 stores. Well, you have to incredibly increase your capacity. How do you do that if you cannot get access to capital? And that is, it's that critical difference between a business that is moving along. You know, the majority of black businesses in Illinois have one or two employees, as opposed to what we're trying to do, which is to grow strong, multi-million dollar companies that have 20, 30, hundreds of employees and then can build wealth for their founders, which will then hopefully return into the communities uh, where those founders come from and hopefully where their companies sit. Got it. Thank you, Andy. Lo love to hear the cycle of money and how that works through our communities. Uh, Jennifer, we'd love to hear your thoughts. On the same topic, well, I would just add that, um, you know, Tabbed in some of the stats they gave, 15% of white Americans have business equity versus the 5% that uh, uh, Della and, and Andy were alluding to for the black counterparts. And I recently read a McKinsey study that said if you were just to get rid of that gap, you'd have $290 billion uh, additional dollars of business equity in MBE firms. So it's a massive gap uh, that we need to solve. And uh, every one of us on this call, I think, has a role to play. Adela? Sure. I mean, this is the critical question and the critical issue because um, this disparity, it, it plays out then in the income opportunity and the wealth opportunity for our communities. And you see it already where Latinas earn 50 cents on the dollar. Uh, you see it women that overall are 80 cents on the dollar. And that's what drives the entrepreneur to try to build something but without the capital we can't get there and this fosters the wealth gap which is horrible for everyone involved uh it, it's creating tremendous social strains in this country and in the world and we have to do something about it by trying to uh, alleviate the capital constraints of the communities that most need to grow and that are growing the fastest. Thank you for that. Uh, Charles, anything to add there? Yes, I think that um, much of it was covered, but what I found is 
Um, and I had this conversation with a partner, an African-American partner of a New York law firm. We were talking about the differences in venture capital for people, access to venture capital for people of color versus uh, majority um, entrepreneurs. And we talked about is that um, people in the majority community can have a great idea and raise capital. For minority communities, you have to have more than just a great idea. You have to bootstrap and come up with a prototype. And you almost have to be in market for you to get anywhere near uh, the, the ability to raise capital. I've, I've just, I've, I've talked about this with friends of mine, about if you're a, a venture capitalist of color, you actually have an advantage because you're able to invest much further along the lines and uh, get better uh, returns because you're backing projects that actually have already proven that they're sustainable because of their ability to survive bootstrapping. And that's what we see. It is definitely an uneven playing field. I, the playing field is tilted significantly against entrepreneurs of, of color to raise venture capital to start their ventures. Got it. Thanks for sharing that, Charles. My next question I would like to direct to Jennifer. Jennifer, trillions of dollars were gained in personal wealth by Americans throughout the pandemic. But unfortunately, this was not the case for the tens of millions with the least amount of wealth who faced deteriorating economic conditions. Can you describe how public and private stakeholders can address challenges and enable solutions that benefit minority business enterprises to unlock the next trillion dollars within the U.S. economic productivity cycle? A big, a big question and an important one, and there's many ways that public and private stakeholders can support MBEs. I think to kind of frame it, I think about it as a, as a two-axis uh, graph where you've got on, on the one axis, the public public partnerships, you know, at one end where you think federal, state partnerships, state, local uh, working together down to a mix of, uh, there's lots and lots of public-private partnerships right now. Think the PPP program where the first two rounds might not have been as equitable as we like, the third round really was, and it was a huge partnership between the federal government and the banks. Uh, BMO, by the way, represented banks incredibly well with their initiatives going after the small, you know, MBEs in the program. So there's lots of different ways you can play the public-private down to a private-private. And most of us on the call, whether we're out of private equity, our family offices, foundations, et cetera, can be partnering with each other uh, in a number of ways. And then the other graph is the kinds of capital that you can bring to bear. So you've got everything from the pure philanthropic dollars, whether it's grants or donations, to more concessionary capital, up to market rate return, uh, whether it's debt or equity instruments that you can be investing in. So the key is kind of figuring out where on the graph you fit, that plays to your strengths and to get going on figuring out how to partner. So BMO, for instance, you guys play it all over the board. You're lending dollars, you're, you're giving straight donations like the $10 million you just gave to the Rush BMO Health Equity Institute to the support that you gave to Fifth Century Partners that our family got in and launched. And by the way, in Fifth Century Partners, just like with Cast Us Fund, the state of Illinois has been, been playing a big role. So you've got a lot of public-private partners with our treasurer's office and other states, I think, have very similar programs uh, going on right now. Um, and you also have organizations uh, in almost every city, like the Commercial Club here in Chicago, that is trying to bring together large corporations, sort of like what Project Black and Ariel is doing, to get big companies supporting um, diverse suppliers 
whether it's through investments or uh, really pr providing a lot more contracts to a diverse supplier set. Um, key to all of these, as we've all been touching on, is the need to focus on scaling MBEs. Closing the wealth gap, another interesting stat I've heard recently, if we actually close the wealth gap, we would increase our economy by one to one and a half trillion dollars a year. It's a huge opportunity. So there's many different ways. I think the key is being intentional, action-oriented, and, and holding yourselves accountable for it. And, and there's really no excuse. There's, you know, as, as we launched another private equity fund, um, I think it behooves all of us as investors to really put a stake in the ground and increase the targets you have of your actual capital allocation, allocation to different um, minority business opportunities. And so, uh, and not only, by the way, do I think it's good business, I think 5CP is seeing a lot of um, uh, advantages right now because of their focus on Black-owned businesses. Uh, it's really a responsibility on all of our parts. And I will just add one other key thing. It's an employee retention tool. As we all know, employees are, care a lot about these issues. They want a sense of purpose and belonging. And focusing on increasing your investments in uh, minority-owned businesses provides this kind of opportunity for the employees. And it's just a great retention tool as well. Yeah, thanks for those comments, Jennifer, and appreciate you giving uh, BMO a shout out. Just a reminder to the audience, BMO does have a $5 billion five-year commitment to lend and provide equity to Black, Brown, uh, Latinx businesses. And, and we've had an incredible first year uh, kind of launching that platform. Uh, now I would like to segue to Charles and talking about Project Black. Private equity firms and their portfolio companies have an outsized ability to influence the status quo of the business community. Globally, about 10,000 PE firms have more than 3.9 trillion in assets under management. In North America alone, about 4,700 firms own more than 18,000 companies. With that kind of influence, if PE firms will continue to reduce their gender and racial inequalities across the companies they control, they could change the face of business. Can you describe how this visionary approach to promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion represents the cornerstone a Project Black's strategy. LaVoy, thank you very much for this question. And I'd like to take a step back because I wanna highlight the power of private equity and the influence of private equity in the corporate landscape. If we scroll back to the 80s and early 90s, private equity was tremendously focused on productivity, um, cost reduction, really focused on driving returns on capital employed for investing. And that found its way through corporate America. And you've heard about it as you sort of looked at GEG in terms of the management of their businesses. That influence went like wildfire through cor corporate America and corporate America became much more efficient and was became much more focused on driving and increasing shareholder value. We see this as exactly the same thing. Private equity through their capital, through their portfolios, through their input have a tremendous responsibility and opportunity to drive impact through their businesses. And so we have that focus in, as part of our investment thesis. In addition to partnering with the Fortune 500 to help them address their supply chain diversity initiatives, it is our strong desire to partner with management teams of color who are committed to both operational excellence. It is absolutely a given 
that we have to drive excellence in terms of the products and services that we offer to the five, Fortune 500. But in addition to that, we have an extremely strong desire to drive dramatic impact through the organization and through the community. So we're going to have boards of directors that are majority minority. We're going to have you know, CEOs, CFOs, COOs who are people of color. Latinx individuals, African American individuals that are that are tremendously successful in their fields of endeavor before they joined us, now are focused on having really a clean, a clean blackboard where they can drive growth in the businesses while focusing on impact, so they can take that growth and target it to underserved communities and underserved people that are seeking to drive wealth going forward. So we're extremely focused on driving impact in the boardroom and the C-suite through all through the entire levels of the organization, as well as meeting our supply chain initiatives. You're going to find that we're extremely focused on tier two supply. So we want to make sure that we're generating success for others. We want these minority business enterprises that are a little bit smaller that can't get to the fortune 500 today to come work with us to be successful to get their sea legs if i will and then they become and able to deal directly with the fortune 500 we're looking to help graduate those businesses and help them be successful i, I heard a, a very interesting story um as i was uh, at a board meeting the other day and i'm going to leave the exact names out but there was a group of majority filmmakers. And one of the filmmakers said, I need your help in terms of finalizing this great film. And he got the group of filmmakers together and they all worked together and they actually traded points, equity in each of their businesses and each of their films they were making. And the films were all tremendously successful, but the one that invited them was the most successful. And I want to see that. I want to see us work together, collaborate, and drive this dramatic wealth creation and success, the opportunity that's there before us now. We want to change how corporate America thinks about minority business enterprises. We want to take away their view that we're subscale, that we don't have the talent. We have tremendous talent. The, the real issue is access and opportunity. So it's both customers as well as capital. And we're here to help fill that gap. Thank you, LaFoy. Yeah, thanks, Charles. I mean, the pieces of Project Black is truly transformative, and we love to see uh, all the success you guys are having to date. Uh, we spent the last several minutes talking primarily about private equity, but I would like to segue to talk a bit about the venture space. Adela, many may not know that, that venture capital plays a unique role in assisting early stage companies with access prior to qualifying for traditional bank debt. Great concepts may go unfunded in the absence of investors willing to take a calculated risk. What role does Angeles investors play in this space? And as a follow-on, how, how do you evaluate opportunities to include in your portfolio? Thanks for that, because this was born out of a uh, strong, compelling desire to do more for the community, getting together as professionals and highlighting individual accomplishments to make Chicago more aware of the existence of Latinos all across the spectrum of professional skills. And then we thought, you know, the real problem is there isn't enough capital in our community. And we have a, a, a lot of uh, 
people in the technology fields and other fields that were accredited investors willing to put money behind prospective startups that could make a difference uh, in wealth for the community. Uh, if you do enough of them, if you grow enough, and again, trying to fill that gap, that lack of capital that comes to the, the same statistics on private equity are the case for venture capital, if not worse. I mean, just women and uh, people of color are basically unseen in terms of ideas that need funding. So a, a strong desire to remedy that. And then you have to be careful in selecting, obviously. And, and, and our criteria is, you know, early. So uh, seed and, and, and uh, even uh, we, we don't say not A and not B, but um, max valuation of 15 million, uh, some revenue already in place, a product already created. We, we, we won't fund, you know, a concept before it, it, it gets uh, the product done. And then uh, we uh, look for participation by the overall community, a lead investor to help guide the process. One of the things I love about this industry is there is a lot of sharing. And I am optimistic that uh, with enough of us focused on the minority um, uh, startup community, that the, the larger community will start taking a look at these opportunities more carefully. I'm really hopeful of that. And that will make a huge difference uh, for the, for society in the long term. Any industry in particular uh, you, you primarily focus on? Well, we, we look for disruption because those are the um, opportunities that are going to succeed. And disruption is occurring at an accelerated pace in the technology digital area. So those opportunities come up across industries, and we're very focused on them. We have a lot of expertise internally to also evaluate them. So those are, are uh, particularly successful. And, you know, as the chair, uh, I'm very focused on women uh, uh, founders uh, because the problem in the Latino community comes down to the Latina earning 50 cents on the dollar. Just think what a difference if Latinas would earn 75 cents on the dollar, what impact that would make on family income. So we're very focused on trying to improve uh, the status uh, of, of Latinas overall. So uh, we're seeing a lot, a lot. Um, and, and that's where a lot of the uh, entrepreneurship is happening, you know, women. Business leaders hear a lot about disruption, but clearly the last 18 months has redefined the term. As demographics shift and the U.S. economy evolves post-COVID-19, what are the attractive growth sectors where you see minority and women entrepreneurs driving transformative change? Adela, you started on that topic, but clearly uh, you may have a, an additional thought or two you would like to share. Yeah, no, it really is. Uh, it, everything that can be digitized across industries is powerful. There's an interest in investing there because what the pandemic did was show us that we need that effectiveness, that ability to communicate uh, when everything else is shut down. So um, that has a, a lot of uh, interest and we're seeing the creativity of the founders in trying to remedy issues, resolve a problem by uh, accelerating their 
technological prowess. And we're focused on that. Andy, we'd love to hear your thoughts on disruption and also driving transformative change. Yeah, so obviously just to piggyback on um, what Adela, you know, look, the truth is pretty much everything is a tech company in some way or shape or form. Um, and I really want to both piggyback on what Adela said, but also highlight something Charles said. I think it's really important in this space. One of the things I think we're all trying to do is to change the perception that somehow uh, Black, Latinx, and women founders are somehow different, like they're broken, like they need help, like they're some small sector. They are innovating. They are driving change. They are disrupting. They are no different. The only difference is they, they get a higher barrier when they walk into a room um, because there is an underlying presumption that somehow they are not the same, that they are not as technologically smart, um, that they're not as business savvy. Um, and I think, you know, one of our objectives and roles is to, is, is to change that. So, you know, it, whether it is providing services, so creating techno, using technological advances to enhance how you provide certain services, everything. We have a company that is in changing the way restaurants order and supply uh, uh, services, uh, repair services for their companies. We have, whether it is there's a, a woman, a black-led woman-owned firm that is changing the way corporate or event organizers better organize their events using technology. We have, there's a woman, a black woman founder who is a, a platform providing cybersecurity services to small businesses because guess what? They have cybersecurity issues too, um, but they can't sometimes access some of the bigger companies. So she's creating a platform for them to be able to access those services. So there is, you name the sector, um, there are uh, Black, Latinx, and women-owned businesses, whether it's AI, uh, whether it is some other form of technology or tied to services, um, there is a space there. We also, of course, not surprisingly, have a lot of companies in the food space, uh, which is terrific, um, but they're also innovating there. They're innovating in taste, in flavor, um, in recognizing the move towards plant-based food. Um, there we have a working with a company, talking to a company that's uh, taking cassava flour and turning it into, which is a mainstay in Africa, um, and turning it into something that should be, uh, can be widespread here in the United States. So um, you name the trend or that whether it is a, a personal trend or a people trend or a technological trend, there is a minority or women-led business who's leading in that space and simply needs support to grow. Thank you, Andy. Jennifer, we'd love to hear your thoughts on disruption and driving change. I will just add a little different twist because I agree with what everybody said so far about all the different sectors and everything's technology-based at some point. As you're seeing on this call, I think there's a huge opportunity to be backing more um, asset managers of color. So I'm just going to add that twist to it. And if you th think about reducing the wealth gap, trying to get more uh, asset managers of color in with proper resources is another way of playing. Because not only are you going to enhance their net worth, but all the companies they're going to focus on and do a, hopefully a much better job and a very good job at finding lots of talent within the black and brown communities to be backing. Um, and I will just share, you know, interesting on the on the fundraising for our Fifth Century Partners Fund, you know, one of the biggest challenges you have to overcome as a first-time fund is typically you're looking to back people who have worked together before. But if you're black, 
or Latinx, you really haven't had a chance to work with anybody in the industry before because that doesn't exist. So we have to think differently about how to be supporting new asset managers of color across all fronts. And there's many new businesses being formed. And so I just think that's another area of focus that we all should have. Uh, let's segue a bit to talk about returns, right? The, the ability to generate above average returns for LPs is predicated on your ability to make solid investments that are built on partnership, collaboration, and most importantly, trust. Jennifer and Adela, can each of you discuss the value that your firms will seek to provide in your portfolio, portfolio companies? Let's start with Jennifer. Uh, yeah, is, you know, as we all probably know in any company's ability to scale, you've got market, business model, capital, technology issues you have to deal with. But in a sense, everything gets back down to um, management talent uh, within the organization. I think that's kind of 80% of whatever every company needs. So we tend to start with um, once you've got the CEO uh, to back, it's really helping them with the right board representation. So getting independent, diverse board candidates. I'm with Charles. You got to have, you're not serving anybody well if you don't have a very strong and diverse set of members on the board. And then really helping add to the talent uh, in the C-suite. Um, and more than that, the CEOs need mentorship and networking opportunities. And so trying to find out what networks, uh, well, really trying to get everybody different kinds of sponsors and mentors, but ways to support access to different kinds of customers, or understanding more about the uh, markets that they're serving, uh, that's critically important. And of course, as we've already talked about, um, everything is being digitized today. So you have to get the companies the right resources they need to make this happen and to execute it well. Um, so the key thread through everything and what we tell our management teams is we are really backing management teams. We don't go in like a lot of funds have to with a set time frame for our investment. We're kind of in our investments as long as the management team wants to be in. So if you can align your interests and kind of support them, uh, you know, throughout the holding period that they want to have, uh, you can you can really have a big impact in you know every step step of the journey that they have on scaling. Thank you, uh, Adela. Love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, that's a great question because of course this is a business in asset management that measures everything, and return is like the most basic measurement, and that is key. I mean. It's it's a risky business in venture capital. So we are we do have return goals and and we assess opportunities that we think can result in above average growth. But what do we bring to the table as Angeles investors? We bring so much more than that initial capital investment. Because I'm struck by something that Andy's said about how minority uh, entrepreneurs they're not so different. They're not, you know, they're not lacking um, basic abilities, but we do lack something in a very significant way. We lack network. We are, we do not have the access to the networks that result in excess investment opportunities for our businesses. And one of the things that we try to do uh, as Angeles investors is to expose those companies that we're interested in, and even those that we're not, to greater opportunities for them. Uh, in, in, you know, we have uh, uh, what do we call pitch events, and we show three or four opportunities there, but we've seen, you know, 40, 50 before we've selected those. 
Many of those we try to direct to the right place. We try to keep an open door and clearly the ones that are in our portfolio, everything we can do. And we're fortunate in that the Angeles investors are across the United States, across industry, they are professional leaders and we can bring revenue opportunities in the way of potential contracts, uh, investment opportunities in the way of, you know, other investors, even corporate investors. It's just so much more than just the dollars and cents. And I think it's an important approach because we have to make up for that lack of network that exists in our communities. And, you know, Chicago, is there's no better place to talk about it. This is a, a city that has grown up, you know, extremely segregated um, by, by ethnic community. So we have to change that. Yeah, Donald, you hit on some great points, uh, particularly talking about the lack of exposure to people of color, to the venture capital and the private equity space. But I would also like to segue into the role of education uh, in this process. A large portion of minority communities will never hear the word private equity, let alone understand how a waterfall works. To provide a data point, in 2019, and according to census.gov, 26% of Blacks ages 25 and older attained a bachelor's degree as compared to 36% for non-Blacks. Although not a data point, it's worth noting the condition of the public school systems for Black and Brown students in major cities across the country are deteriorating. Andy, in your role as chair of the board at Chicago State University, are you also seeing similar trends? And if so, what steps can be taken to help increase enrollment and retention of Black and Brown students? Yeah, so it's a great point, Lavoie. You know, the the numbers uh, currently for Black and Brown students and Black students in particular in higher education are uh, discouraging. Uh, the number of en enrollment of particularly of Black males in uh, college and secondary programs has declined uh, annually for the last five years. Um, in the last year, if anybody's been paying attention to, there's been a several reports about it recently around college enrollment um, for community colleges, for four-year colleges, significantly down uh, in 2021 versus 2020 and, and, of course, since 2019. So we have some work to do, uh, and obviously there's a whole host of reasons for that. Uh, but you are right if we're talking about um, uh, engaging people in the business sector, you know, education becomes critically important. And there's a couple pathways. First, you know, obviously, as you've pointed out, paying attention to our, our high schools and promoting and encouraging development of, of our, our high schools. Um, you know, we in Chicago, um, the public school high schools here had improved dramatically up until the pandemic. Um, with an uh, enrollment uh, for just, for example, on graduation rate went from 50% uh, to 80%. Um, and if you just think about that for a second, um, you know, we had 50% of our students who were not graduating from Chicago Public High School. Uh, what does that mean? Um, and that's changed. And we also have more students enrolled in dual degree programs. Um, but then the pandemic hit. Uh, and we are going to pay for that. Um, that was that was a huge impact for students, particularly students on the margin to take those students and say, all of a sudden you're going to go um, be facing a screen for students who have, um, you know, that community and that support is critically important. So uh, I, I think that the CPS is very focused on addressing that issue, but there's a real gap there. For colleges at, at Chicago State, uh, we're doing a number of things. We have a, a program 
for first-year students uh, where tuition is free. They are supported. They have a, a, a counselors and teachers um, and uh, all aimed at retaining our program. We have programs to support students who are staying in who are facing financial challenges. Uh, we have a lot of students who get in, make it through, bear, through the first year, but then to, to re-enroll, um, they have a real challenge. So we've been eliminating debt for students to make sure if, we, if they are close to graduating, we have a program to eliminate their debt. Uh, more importantly, we are started uh, last year under President Scott's leadership at Chicago State, we had a statewide panel uh, put together to look at equity and addressing disparity in education. Uh, and part of this is making sure that we start addressing uh, enrollment and retention. And we're going to have an institute at Chicago State focused on addressing disparities for students of color um, so that we can put, continue to put some of these programs in place. Lastly, I just want to say, just for people to know, because I just found this out the other day that I thought was so powerful from um, Juan Salgado, the chancellor at uh, uh, City Colleges of New York. They now have a program for adult learners for certificate programs where they can go in and then go move to get a job. It's free. Um, City Colleges is, is free now for those students. Uh, and that's on top of their STAR scholarship, which is where any student who graduates from City uh, from Chicago Public Schools with a B average or plus, City Colleges is free. So addressing this cost of education is, of course, important. Uh, we are working on that here in Chicago, which I think is important to do and going to be critically important because if you can't get that entry level education, it's really hard to then go on to get that secondary level that you need. And frankly, you need some level of education for almost any job um, of uh, of real of middle income uh, salary. Thank you for your insights there, Andy. Jennifer, we'll, we'll love to hear your thoughts on the role of education. Well. I I'll, I'll bring it. I, I think it's just critically important on all fronts, too. So we've got, you know, the North Lawndale College Prep um, High School that we had started where we are now uh, with the Phoenix Pact program on it. If a student graduates with a B average or above, uh, we give them the total last dollar scholarship. So the goal is, per Andy's point, is so expensive. You've got to address the cost of college. So the goal is that they're going to come out of college with 10000 or less of debt if they go to a school that's very good about graduating students of color. So they have to go to what we call a success college. So I think if you start tracking all the way through, uh, it's key to get these students through school. And and and, and coming back more to the finance and, and private equity world, there are a lot more programs out now, uh, hopefully geared towards getting more women and students of color into the areas of finance. So one national program I'll highlight is Management Leadership for Tomorrow that was started by Susan Rice's brother, John Rice. If you're not familiar with it, I encourage you to become a member. We're now a full-fledged member. We're trying to broaden them in the Midwest because they're more East Coast based, but they take all sorts of women and students that call mostly Latinx and, and Black students who are interested in finance all the way through, whether it's at the high school level, college, or even graduate program levels, and really partner them up and get them um, onto much better career path opportunities. So I uh, highly recommend that for uh, involvement if you're trying to look for more folks of color in your business. Yeah, thank you, Jennifer. MLT for sure is a great program. Uh, Adela, we'd love to hear your thoughts on the role of education. So for me, education is everything. Uh, I'm not sure if you know, but I'm an immigrant to the United States. And my parents brought me here as a six-year-old and uh, the oldest of five for one sole purpose, 
to get education that would enable me to be a professional, whatever that meant, uh, not exactly clear. And our family was focused on every enhancement that would enable us to be college educated. So there is nothing that I think is more essential to success in anything than education. And because of that, you know, I, I, I'm now on the board of Arupe College, which uh, as part of Loyola, they have a two-year program really focused on uh, kids, uh, Black and Latino kids, and trying to give, give them the skills to enter a four-year college. And they provide every kind of service besides, you know, education. And we have a 75% success rate in terms of getting them to a four-year program. That's extremely high. Um, and now this program has gone national uh, with a, a college being started in um, New York. And I think there's one um, plan for California. These are the things we have to do because if we don't address the education gap, that's just going to exacerbate the financial income gap that already exists. So they go hand in hand. We have to do everything we can for our young people to understand that they have to try to stay through a college education. As Andy says, everything now requires, you know, reading the manual and learning the technology behind it. That's 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 education that's required. And and, and this is a major problem in our communities. We have to be front and center trying to address it. Thank you, Adela. Hey, LaVoy, I just want to add on, because I do think, you know, absolutely we're talking about education, but the other part of that is when you get them in, they stay in, is then access to internships and job opportunities, summer job opportunities uh, that will help them expand their careers. And you know, in Chicago, we have the Apprenticeship Network. Um, the Illinois Venture Capital Association has an internship program. But I think, you know, you talked, we talked a while ago about what can companies do. I think be intentional about making sure that those opportunities you have are expanding to broader communities because we know how critical those jobs are. And a lot of times, particularly recently, you know, post-pandemic, a lot of those internships don't pay. Well, these students need money. You know, these students are the ones who are going home in the summer and working so they can pay for the next year of school. So paid internships, apprenticeship opportunities, opportunities where they can get credit at school, wherever you can support that uh, for, particularly for diverse students, is really, really important. And I can't underestimate that because we all had them. We all had them. And so, but for students of color, like our students at Chicago State, finding those internships opportunities for them is a lot of work and we're focused on it, but this is a place where I think the corporate and business community can really step up. Yeah, uh, thank you, Andy, for underscoring those points. Uh, as we begin to bring our panel to a close, I wanna ask each of the panelists to address the next topic, which has to deal with industry access to private equity and also venture capital. In the media, it's pretty well known that private equity struggles with this diversity problem. Firms in the rarefied asset management investment sector have a dismal record on diversity. A growing awareness of this issue is prompting efforts to closing this glaring gap. Providing minorities and women with more robust career opportunities in private equity and venture capital is critical. However, having them pay back six figures in student loan debt greatly slows the narrowing of the wealth gap. 
I've got two questions that I would love to hear all of the panelists respond to. Number one, have you seen examples of private equity or venture capital firms working to reduce the racial and gender disparities that exist? And number two, how can we encourage others to take on this challenge? I would like to start with Charles. Okay, Lavoie, thank you. Um, and if I may, the issue isn't competency or critical mass of African-American or Latinx professionals that can drive and generate attractive returns. It is frankly the level of comfort or lack thereof with inclusion in these extremely lucrative private equity partnerships. There is a certain way that people are recruited for these opportunities. And let me tell everyone, it's not via indeed.com. The private equity industry needs to be pushed by the providers of capital for private equity to be more inclusive. So it's the pension funds, it's Fortune 500, it's ultra high net worth individuals, it's family offices need to dramatically push private equity to be more inclusive. And so, you know, we can talk about being um, aggressive in terms of ideas. So if you look at uh, the NFL uh, to try to increase hiring for uh, head coaches, they came up with the uh, Rooney rule. Andy Rooney said that you can't hire someone unless you interview a person of color. And I would tell you at certain partnerships, they need that kind of push. They need for the pension funds to ask them very pointed questions around how many people of color did you interview for your associate class, for your vice president class, for your principal class? Because you, if you don't get into those positions and you don't prove yourself by having excellence and execution and thoughtful idea generation that turns return, that drives returns, you're never going to have the opportunity to get the partners that run these firms comfortable with you to bet millions, if not tens of millions of dollars on you to become a partner in their firm. And um, what was fortunate for me and how I got into private equity was I worked for a person at the Rockefeller Group 35 years ago, and he spun out and started his own firm. And I got experience by joining him. So he was comfortable with me. And then I joined Citicorp Venture Capital because the head of the group, the chairman, Bill Comfort, was teaching a seminar on leverage buyouts. And he decided that the smartest person in the class happened to be a person in color and he was going to hire that person. The, the, the interesting thing, though, is even though he hired me, he was still uncomfortable. And so he told me that I always had to travel with a, and this is a 100% true story, he told me I always had to travel with uh, a, a Caucasian person because they would be uncomfortable hearing how to better run their business or growth opportunities with me in the lead. That's the level of discomfort that was in private equity in 1993, 1994. So I don't want everyone to think that, you know, they're going to move on their own. They're going to move because Calper says, we want you to drive towards having 15% of your associates and vice presidents and principals being people of color to the majority firms. They're going to change because CalPERS is in saying we're going to invest 10% of our capital with people of color who have started their own firms. And those firms driving tremendous success 
And so the partners of these firms see that success and say, um, I want them on my team. That's how we change. Got it. Thanks, uh, Charles, for your insight and sharing a personal story there. Uh, Jennifer, we'd love to hear your thoughts on industry access. Yeah, I, I could not agree more, actually, with what, what Charles was saying. And I think we have to, as an industry and as a family office, be much more uh, creative in, in broadening the funnel of, of talent because the talent is there. And it's just a lot of times, you know, we don't know about it. I, I do think, by the way, many firms are focusing on DEI initiatives with their hiring, training, retention. As, as one of my partners always says, it's really a heart condition, not a head condition. Uh, you have to... Um, People have to have a shared purpose and sense of belonging, uh, you know, at at the firm, and you you've got to get people wanting to be much more inclusive. And so I mentioned MLT. Uh, uh, Andy alluded to there's the IVCA Scholar Program, uh, which we're participating in, um, and we're also starting an analyst program. And I'm seeing a lot of other private equity firms do that because again, you've got to get outside the normal career path, and we're starting an analyst program just for women and people of color. Uh, to, to come in and start learning about the industry. One of the things to the point Charles made is, is we're in positions where we can be demanding uh, private equity firms to be doing more. There's an, an initiative out there started by the um, uh, Institutional LP Association, the ILPA. They have a diversity and action pledge that folks can now take. And as up, uh, up to now, and it's geared towards both LPs and GPs, and to take the pledge, you're committing to four foundational elements, which includes having a DEI statement or strategy. You have to internally track your hiring and your promotions to make sure you actually have a target and you're working towards hitting targets and seeing improvement there, as well as some other things. About 175 firms have signed on to date. We're signing, we're in the process of signing on right now. And that's something we can all be working uh, uh, to do. Um, and then I think besides the internal focus, you have to have an extra, you got to go through the internal journey yourself, and then you've got to be bringing it to portfolio companies as well. So I think all of us, you know, on the panel are probably very focused on the companies we back, what's their own governance structure like, uh, and where are they on their own sort of commitment to their DEI journey, because a lot of the companies we partner with um, are really missing out on opportunities as well uh, from improving uh, their businesses if they can broaden their own funnel of hiring talent uh, and thinking about it from a board perspective and in their own C-suite. So we've got to be looking, I think you got to first do what the internal work and then you got to be turning it externally as well. Thank you, Jennifer. We are running a bit short on time, but I, I want to allot uh, 60 seconds to Adela to address industry access and then I'll hand it over to Andy to close us out. Thanks so much. Yeah, uh, my answer to your question, have you seen examples of PEVC firms working to reduce the racial and gender disparities? No. The answer is no. Where is it? The statistics are compelling. There is almost ne there's negligible participation of minorities in this industry. And I think that it's upon the VC and PE firms to say what are they doing? because they're not doing very much. And, you know, it, it should be the investors, i.e. government pension plans, corporates that are putting money into these funds to say, how are you addressing the fastest growing market in America, which is Latinos? Where are they represented in your, uh, in, in your in group of employees, in your group of companies? You know, it's, it's incumbent. 
they, they, before you put money in, you should be demanding this. Believe me, money talks. And, and this is where the money is coming from. So I think that there should be a follow-up here and have them address what are they doing? Because I'm not seeing it. Uh, thank you, Adela. Andy. I just want to add, just follow on that really, you know, I think Adela and Charles both focus on the fact that, you know, the investors, potential investors are, who are using these money management firms have to have to make demands. But I also think the next step there is there has to be uh, there has to be accountability. Um, I, you know, I sat on the Chicago Teachers Pension Fund board and I cannot tell you how many times uh, majority investment firms came in and we would ask them the question, we would look at their statistics and year over year, nothing changed. And I think in those instances, um, you know, those uh, uh, pension funds and people who are putting money into funds have to say, you know what, we're going to prioritize putting our money in places that clearly whose commitment aligns with ours. Uh, and when that starts happening in real ways, um, you know, you will start seeing some change because uh, I agree with Adela that there's not great um, examples of people really in this sector really making change because they, they haven't had to because year over year, people still continue to give them hundreds of millions and billions of dollars to invest um, without them making real meaningful change in providing access. And let's face it, we all know that's where real wealth is built inside those, in, inside those firms. Uh, and they have the opportunity to really grow change by uh, increasing their diversity, and they need to start doing it. Well, we've officially exhausted our time, and I'd like to thank each of our panelists for their contributions to this robust discussion. Accelerating access to capital is truly the catalyst of building a more inclusive economy, and I look forward to the continued progress in the coming months and years. Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, strategy, or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. Individual investors should consult with an investment, tax, and or legal professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results.